Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. Got up at eight, did my hair, did my face, sang my scales, limbered up at the bar. It's The Takeaway. I'm Janae Pierre, in for Melissa Harris-Perry. Here's a song called The Broadway Boogie Woogie Blues, which was cut from the original 1975 show A Chorus Line and later sung by Donna McKechnie. I'm much too tall, much too short, much too thin, much too fat, much too young for the role. I sing too high, sing too low, sing too loud. Could you read it with a little control? I got the Broadway boogie woogie known as Don't Call Us, We'll Call You. The song pretty much sums up the exasperating process of actors auditioning and trying to get cast in a show on Broadway. And while being in a Broadway show is physically demanding, sometimes training and singing and dancing your heart out isn't enough. And many people have historically been excluded from casting because of certain body types, gender, race, or disability. Take one famous example when Lacage Fall opened in New York in 1983. It was the first musical to star a gay couple, but cast two straight actors. And in the critically acclaimed show Wicked, the role of Nessa Rose, a character who uses a wheelchair, has historically gone to able-bodied actors. So we're looking at whose bodies Broadway casts and who it casts aside. My name is Ryan Donovan. I am assistant professor of theater studies at Duke University and author of Broadway Bodies, A Critical History of Conformity. In his new book, Ryan looks at Broadway musicals and casting from 1970 to 2020 and the bodies that Broadway has excluded from its stages based on size, gender, disability, and how that intersects with race and ethnicity. So what is a Broadway body, Ryan, and what are the politics and paradoxes of that representation on Broadway stages? The Broadway body is the ideal body for Broadway musicals as the industry has Uh, defined it. And the way that I think about it is that it's usually a very conventionally attractive, very fit, think six-pack abs, think uh, ripped muscles, uh, triple threat performer. So a performer who's equally adept at acting, singing, and dancing, who can play their part in the ensemble in the afternoon and cover the leading role and go on that night. And they represent the the way that the Broadway industry has commodified the body so that one performer can do all of those things. And uh, that's all contained within one body, saving producers money and um, making this ideal also very hard to reach, frankly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, musical theater and theater in general have been known as sort of a safe haven for many people and also a place to celebrate nonconformity and identities. Is that the paradox here? Exactly. The paradox here is what I I think of as the kind of ambivalent inclusion that Broadway musicals practice. So, for instance, Broadway musicals often feature characters who have physical disabilities And those roles are almost always cast with non-disabled actors. Um, The same thing goes with musicals like Dreamgirls and Hairspray that are um, inclusive of bigger bodies. And yet those musicals cast actresses in the leading roles and made them wear fat suits and often have uh, contractually stipulated weigh-ins where producers were monitoring the performer's weight. 
So Broadway is both a haven for people who don't conform and the way that it treats them once they get there is is pretty ambivalent. Mm -hmm. Ryan, I'm wondering, what was your purpose uh, behind writing this book? I mean, what did you want people to sort of take away from it? This book is an invitation to consider the histories of exclusion, actually, that, that Broadway musicals have long been a part of. And it's an invitation then to think about what if this book didn't need to be written? What if there weren't these long histories of casting non-disabled actors in disabled roles, for instance? What if there was parody in casting and gay actors were able to play gay roles on Broadway more frequently? Uh, what if what if uh, actors of size were able to play romantic leading roles regularly to the point that it was not remarkable? And that's really where I'm coming from. I want people to to think about what are the politics of of the musical that we're enjoying and who's seen and who's not seen on stage. Yeah. So in your book, Broadway Bodies, you have three different sections on size, sexuality, and ability. Can you sort of set the stage for us and give a few examples of shows that were casting in these narrow body ideals? I know you just mentioned Hairspray and uh, Dreamgirls, but could you give us a few more examples as well? Absolutely. Um, I'm thinking today actually about Phantom of the Opera, which is closing this weekend after becoming the longest running Broadway show. And that's a show that it's easy to think has nothing to do with this conversation, but the logo is is the mask that covers the phantom's facial disfigurement. So I think that's that's one of the examples that I'm thinking about in the book. And uh, just in terms of of that conversation with disabled characters, for instance, I mean, and we're looking at shows like Porgy and Bess, Wicked, Annie, Newsies, The Who's Tommy. It's it's endemic almost. Um, and in terms of sexuality in the book. I look particularly at the 1983 musical La Caja Fall and its and its Broadway revivals. Also at, at shows like Hedwig and the Angry Inch and The Color Purple. And in terms of size, uh, you know, uh, there's this trend where bigger bodies are often cast as the comedic sidekick or the fat best friend mm -hmm. in shows like Grease. So uh, this yeah rarely rarely the leading rarely role. the leading role and you know dream girls and hairspray are the only two shows of the past 50 years to regularly cast a fat woman as the lead and you know those shows are both about the intersection of race and popular music so you can only play tracy turnblad and hairspray if you're white and you can only play effie in dream girls if you're black and so you know there's there's this intersectional element of casting all of these roles too. And I would say that, you know, race and ethnicity cut across all of the identities that I'm looking at in the book. So they intersect with size, gender, sexuality, and ability. And, uh, you know, they're primary factors as well. And part of the work the book is doing is to, to introduce these other elements that go into casting apart from race and ethnicity, which are the primary ways that casting has been discussed uh, both in the media and by scholars. Okay, hold it right there. We'll be right back with Ryan Donovan and his new book, Broadway Bodies, A Critical History of Conformity, when we return. 
This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, a young writer attaches himself to a rising star in politics named Barack Obama. Interesting guy. Speaks in what sound like paragraphs. Very good posture, that guy. Enviable posture. <laughs> I am a writer, and I have this, this very slight hunch. And he has none of that. A political coming-of-age story from staff writer Vincent Cunningham, plus actor and director Bradley Cooper, all on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcast. Hey there, I'm Janae Pierre, in for Melissa Harris-Perry, and this is The Takeaway. I've been speaking with Ryan Donovan, assistant professor of theater studies at Duke University and author of the new book, Broadway Bodies, A Critical History of Conformity. And we've been talking about how Broadway has historically not included many different body types in casting. I'm wondering, Ryan, who's reinforcing all of this in the first place? I mean, is it the director, the casting director? Um, Who is it? Casting directors actually, I think, are the ones trying to change this dynamic. So... I would argue that it's it's directors and it's producers. And one of the one of the quotes in the book is from a legendary director choreographer, Michael Bennett, who directed a chorus line, among other things. And he makes the point that um, you know, when he's thinking about casting and what shows to do, he says, I'm gonna quote him, it's about are you marketable? Is it saleable? Will it make money? And so that's always where Broadway is going to fall back on. It's a business and it's, it is for profit. And, you know, if more inclusively cast work starts making money, that's going to motivate producers to keep doing it. Yeah. Right now, the New York City Council is currently considering legislation that would prohibit discrimination based on height and weight in the workplace. How would this affect Broadway? This is a fantastic bill, and I hope that it does impact Broadway. But there is an exemption baked into the bill for employers where uh, they have a, a, a bona fide occupational reason to consider weight or height. And I think that Broadway producers are, in some instances, going to take advantage of that exemption. And so I think that laws are not enough. I think they're they're a great first step. But as we've seen with uh, previous laws like the Americans with Disabilities Act, there's often no mechanism for enforcing them. And that puts the burden on the people most impacted already. And so I'm not I'm not hopeful that Broadway is going to change as a result of this bill if it if it's passed. I think what will change Broadway is money. I think audiences not showing up for things that aren't uh, what they want to see on and who they want to see on stage speaks louder than any bill could. Yeah. So do you think it's it's just money? I mean, you said that the the law would not be the best next step. So what is the best next step? I think the best next step is is happening already. I think this Broadway season is more inclusively cast than any in recent memory. I also want to give a, a shout out to this production of Disney's Beauty and the Beast that was done the last two years at uh, Maryland's Olney Theater Center, directed by Marsha Milgram Dodge, where uh, she cast as Belle, a plus-size Black woman, and as the Beast, uh, an actor whose leg was amputated. And so it was remarkable. It, it received so much notice, and it was so important, not just for kids in the audience who look like the people on stage, but I think for everyone, for people who don't 
you know, who aren't disabled or who aren't a plus size or white or black or, you know, it's for everyone to see what inclusion looks like. It's important for every audience member. And uh, that's, that's the change that needs to come to Broadway. And I think it is. And I, so I'm, I'm actually hopeful that even absent the, the passage of this bill that we're seeing uh, we're seeing this new level of inclusion on Broadway and in all forms of diversity um, beyond race and ethnicity, inclusive of size, ability, sexuality, gender. Uh, we're really at a tipping point on Broadway this season. And it's frankly, it's a thrill to see. Yeah. You know, we we all remember Broadway was closed for a year and some change uh, during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. Have you noticed any changes or um, additional pushes for change? There were so many movements uh, agitating for change on Broadway in the wake of George Floyd's assassination by police uh, in 2020. And I think that there was there was a real cultural reset on Broadway. I'm not going to pretend that everything has changed and it's all better now. It's not the work is ongoing and change is incremental as as always. But I do see that this season, you know, the range of work that's being done and the fact that uh, the norms of casting are visibly changing is, I I think, a result of the work of many activists and many groups uh, pushing pushing for Broadway to break up its its status quo. Do you have any additional examples of, of some of the shows that are actually doing that and, and making strides? I know you earlier you mentioned uh, Beauty and the Beast. Yes. On Broadway this season, uh, I'm particularly excited about Bonnie Milligan and Kimberly Akimbo. Um, Camelot, which just opened, features a, a queer disabled performer as one of the knights. The season opened with uh, Martina Mayock's play Cost of Living, which featured to visibly disabled performers as disabled characters. Uh, we've also got um, a wheelchair using actor in a doll's house on Broadway, non-binary performers in Anne Juliet. Uh, we have a trans performer in Sweeney Todd, uh, the musical Some Like It Hot. I mean, I could go on and on there. It's a really, really exciting season. And uh, there's a, a full range of humanity on display on Broadway in a way that we've not seen before. Yeah, and I and I love that for for audiences who have uh, become regulars to to Broadway. So, thank you for mentioning those. Ryan Donovan is an assistant professor of theater studies at Duke University and the author of the new book Broadway Bodies: A Critical History of Conformity. Ryan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure.